Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 222.AC1605, certificate number 31147, The Church of the Subgenius. Have you ever wondered about your neighbors? Maybe wondered about the weird thumps and bumps chants emanating from their apartment? I was once a degenerate, but Bob saved me. It's the Church of the Subgenius. Their prophet's name is Bob. If Jim Jones could talk 900 people into killing themselves, we could talk 900 people into sending us a dollar. Fnord. Ken. This kind of gets to the core of my question about the Church of the Subgenius. Is it funny? Did you hear what I just said? You said Fnord. Aha! Am I supposed to say something back if I were a true fellow subgeniusian no the facts are that probably most of our listeners well no this i can't say this for sure about futurelings but most normal people would not be able to hear the word fnord or read it because uh, whoa children are inculcated in our world indoctrinated into um, a state where the word fnord becomes invisible to them and when they see it or hear it, it just creates a feeling of dis, uh, like disease, uh, uncomfortableness. Um, so there would be like an empty place in the page of text. Exactly, or not? They wouldn't even. They would just gloss over. Their it. eyes would not be able to. They focus wouldn't be able to see it. Fnord, but they would feel bad when when their eyes passed over Fnord, uh, or if they're you know if someone were to say Fnord, they would feel uneasy, um, and. That's sort of uh, how mind control works in our contemporary society. Can you explain who is putting the word Fnord into our uh, children's magazines and serials and making them feel bad? The conspiracy is doing this work, Ken. There is a, uh, I'm sure you've heard of it, a global conspiracy uh, that's made up of corporatists and If I've heard of it, it's not a very good conspiracy. Well, because you can hear the word Fenord, too. Oh, I see. I'm one of the rare people who can shine some light on this. You see, the the vast majority of current residents of Earth are what we would describe as pinks. Those pinks. Pinks are people who... It's not related to their skin color or their communist leanings. No, they're just pinks. What And what is it that makes them pinks? 
Pinks are the regulars. Pinks are the ones uh, who are not descended from yetis. Wait, 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 wait. They're not descended from yetis? That's right. But everyone else is. Not everyone else is. About, I would say, 10% of us were truly descended from yetis. Let me explain. Uh, Pinks would be the vast majority of people. That's right. The majority of people are non-yetis. But those of us, you and I apparently, who can hear the word Fnord, and anyone listening who heard Fnord there, is a yeti descendant or yeti descendant adjacent? There are going to be a lot of people listening to this program. Well, again, I can't say for for certain whether futurelings are living in a post-pink society. Because one of the tenets of the Church of the Subgenius is that it is a comedy uh, religion in some ways, but it's a very dark religion in others. Just like every religion, one of the tenets of the Church of the Subgenius— I am not going to be on board with all this, <laughs> did I just blow your mind, Pastafarianism stuff. Uh, is that uh, the pink should be eliminated. They should be uh, exterminated? Yeah, pretty much through, you know, not like directly through firing squads, but, you know, disease and uh, Eugenics. plague. You know, that the, the pinks are— The vast uh, majority of the human race— I'm talking about 90% of them, yeah. —should die. That's correct. Yeah, according to— So they to, should be rooting for whatever cataclysm eventually comes, They essentially are, and that's what I'm saying. Maybe the futurelings are all, are all survivors of the of the— Apocalypse of Pinks. That would have been nice to, and be, to get back in touch with your Yeti roots, kind of, you know, yeah. like, like Alex Haley style. Maybe they can all hear Fnord, but maybe people will be listening to, maybe there are Pinks listening to this show pre Pink Topolypse. Pre Pink Topolypse. There are Pinks listening to this. And uh, Is that, and that's are, why you started with Fnord. Their yeah, ears just that's right. raised right off this entry and they started listening to the dollop at that that's moment. Right. They are extremely uncomfortable. The thing, the, the way it works though, is that Fnord is liberally sprinkled the word into uh, all of our texts and all media. Is it? Except, is it except commercials. In commercials, there is never a Fnord. In order that you feel more comfortable listening to commercials, a pink would feel more at home within the space of being advertised to because they're not being given this constant negative stimulation of the word Fnord. And that serves the conspiracy. It which, does. which wants you to watch the commercials. They do. They want you to be a, to be a good consumer. Does this explain why I can't finish Infinite Jest? Does it have the word Fnord in it? I bet it is 80% Fenord. That, <laughs> that, that, that would be why it's so long, I guess. 7,000 7, pages long and very hard to finish. Fenord, maybe it's been chosen because it's not a, 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 a combination of phonemes you would likely hear. Fnord, F-N-O-R-D. Unless Boy, you were looking at a fjord and you, uh, you know, kind of had something in your nose or something. There, there, are, there are a lot of people squirming in their chairs. Let me ask you this. How much familiarity do you have with culture jamming as a concept? I would say almost none. What does it mean to jam a culture? Culture jamming is a anti-commercialization, anti-capitalist counter-programming idea that we are being assailed all the time by commercial programming, by uh, indoctrinization programming through the television and the radio and the newspapers that there is a, a giant either in some ways conscious conspiracy and in other ways self-replicating unconscious conspiracy to keep us all docile and in a position where our needs are unmet such that we can be advertised to and presented with all these 
products that will hopefully meet our unmet needs, but but this state of of constant flux. I mean, it's a very common way of looking at contemporary culture. So far, I agree with 100% of this. Uh, but And so culture jamming is an attempt by rebellious people within this society who do not want to who do not want to live in a state of perpetual consumerism and also who feel somewhat like responsible for saving their fellow men or at least subverting this dominant paradigm to uh, interject sort of seditious material into the the cultural media stream stuff that either imitates you know regular consumerism or in some way is meant to throw your throw your mind out of whack a little bit to so it's like the analogy would be like jamming a radio transmission right. or whatever like we're gonna we're gonna counter program you so you're more hip to the the society-wide brainwashing that you're undergoing right and the it's an extension of the radio jamming idea but because this conspiracy is so pervasive it isn't just enough to get in and and uh, into the advertising space for instance because because the premise is that culturally everything that we're doing our schools our elections our our religions and philosophy they're all combining as a com- as as different components of this vast conspiracy to keep us all churning. You got to jam everything. You have to jam everything. What, what do you replace it with? Well, uh, Fnord, <laughs> uh, you replace it with a, uh, with a concept that all is chaos. The problem with Western society and the problem with supporting architecture of this grand conspiracy is that we are constantly trying to find order. We believe that order is a pure state, the natural state. Order is the aspirational state. And we feel like chaos and disorder are the sickness, are the the cancer. And so all religions, all governments, all systems are promulgating a, a notion of order as the higher higher state. In fact, in fact, chaos is the actual state, the actual purest state. It isn't really even aspirational. It just it is. It seems like that's, yeah. If, if society doesn't evolve, you know, the, did the dinosaurs have order? No. Not well, but no, but yes, but no. It's a pretty easy case to make that chaos is more natural or universal. And in embracing chaos, in living chaotically, you are freed from the shackles of the vast conspiracy that's attacking you at every level of, of your social engagement this, with other people. This may not be for me. What if you're someone like me who likes to spend a lot of the day pushing chairs back in and alphabetizing his CDs? And yet you can still hear Fnord. <laughs> I'm not sure. You may, be a, you may be in a liminal state. Is there really any case, you know, in a real, any real kind of arena? Like, is there any real social relationship in which you want chaos? Like, if you, if you want somebody, if you tell somebody to meet you for coffee, do you really want them to not be there or be there three hours late or be there wearing a clown suit or to blow up the coffee place? 
Well, you don't if you are if your day if your if your day is ticking away according to a clock that's been set in motion by even by uh, saying an hour late, I'm giving <laughs> into the to the conspiracy, aren't it's, I? Your your whole mind is so baked into the conspiracy that it's very difficult to get shocked out of it. I didn't realize it was the guy from Negative Land who uh, who coined the idea of culture jamming. I remember them from their. U2 lawsuit. Yeah, that's right. Which is a pretty good joke to call your record U2. It's a super good joke. Uh, Negative Land has has done Negative Land is part of the uh of uh, later iterations of this this group that we're about to discuss that started with a book called Principia Discordia, which was written in 1963 by a guy named Greg Hill um with a with with his friend Kerry Thornley. And it was a uh, Greg Hill was writing under the pseudonym Malacalypse the Younger. Yeah, if my name was Greg Hill and I was <laughs> writing an all-time subversive classic, I would probably not use my real name. Uh, but this his book Principia Discordia was uh, it laid out a kind of new philosophy that was based in a lot of Greek myths, and it, it tried to incorporate the the mythos of all past religions in a lot of ways that that sort of universalist religious movements try to do but not as a put on as totally as a put on oh, okay. um but not not a put on as much as a sarcastic deconstruction of religion from the perspective of this this growing sense that in that people had in the 1960s that there was an uh, over there there were these overarching systems of social control that uh that could be identified that could be tied together this notion that you just earlier said like yes i totally agree with almost all of those ideas they were new to to the mainstream culture at the time and nobody had ever thought about that i guess uh Probably anti-Semites had. Anti-Semites certainly had they the were, protocols were, of the elders of Zion. They were, they were ahead of the curve. <laughs> and and there was all that anti-Masonic. Uh, sure, but, sure. But those were seen as control of banks and uh, and of religion to a certain extent. But no one would say they have your mind the second you're born, man. Right. And, they, and there wouldn't have been, because consumerism was a fairly... Yes. New concept. It wasn't tied so much to the idea that what the Masons and the Jews were trying to do was just get you into this state of constant, like, dissatisfied shopping. If you really are growing your own food and buying one new bolt of fabric a year to make all your kids' dresses and uh, uh, whatever boys wore instead of dresses, tunics. Tunics. It is hard, probably. (laughs) All your jute. Potato sacks. Your jute and your gingham. I mean, it is hard to argue that there is some overarching set of powerful faceless institutions that control your fate. The king. king. But but that's about it. But today, of course, where we all are in an intercomplex web of all these things we need or think we need, then it does become very compelling, this idea that uh, you don't have a lot of choice about what you've been thrown into. Yeah, the difficulty in it, as the conspiracy has extended to encompass all of our daily activity. It's, and a, ca- all it's a capital life. C, by the way? The conspiracy. I could tell by the way you were saying it. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's very hard to maintain the conceit that you are the one that can see clearly. And this is the problem with the with all these giant conspiracy theories that are so popular now. It's, it's uh, people who ascribe to those uh, those theories of the world mm-hmm. all 
always manage somehow to exempt themselves from the brainwashing, right? Everyone else is taken in. Everyone else thinks this is a real pizza parlor. Right. No one else can hear the word the fnord, but, uh, but I can. And, and it's astonishing to think how many people there are out there who believe that the, these millions and millions of people uh, in the world, including PhDs, people who have stuttered government their whole life, like they're all taken in. But but, but, me, but me, a, a guy who has not worked a steady job in three years. Yeah, I've been working for Frito-Lay for, for uh, 15 years as a shipper, but somehow I know that the structure that controls the, the, the whole world. Maybe they just think a lot of people like me recognize it, but we're pretty comfortable with it. Well, like so, people like me are like, yeah, it probably exists, but it's working for me, honestly. So I'm just going to go with it. I think it, it, somebody like you who actually is a media personality would be – I, uh, more often than not, I think, put in a different category, which is that you are part I'm of I'm actively, it. but no one ever approached me about being on the conspiracy. The thing is that there's so many levels of it. They did approach you. You just didn't recognize it because you are part of the machine. You're a tool of the oppressors and one of the oppressed. They should have known that the second they saw me alphabetizing my CDs. Well, you was, you started scooting all the chairs in around the table and they were like, here's a, here's a live one. <laughs> Let's wind him up. <laughs> the first time they heard me do my... Why do I have to keep turning off the lights in the basement? Kids, you know. No, they, when they realized that you were willing to answer in the form of a question, they were, they said, yeah. A real Discordian <laughs> on Jeopardy would be like, would, would interrogate the format. I refuse to play along with your games, Trebek. This answer question thing makes no sense. That's right. That's right. Well, or you wouldn't have started with the lowest denomination in the question, <laughs> Ken. Right. You wouldn't have started with the $100. The true Discordians on Jeopardy start at the bottom of the column. <laughs> When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. But the idea, the Greek goddess Eris. Goddess of strife. Which in Latin was discordia. Uh. Um, she was the goddess of disorder and strife. That's right. And her sister, Aeneris, or the goddess of harmony. What a bummer, by the way, what, to be born. Good news, you're an immortal. Oh, sweet. You have amazing powers. What am I the goddess of? You're the goddess of strife, honey. <laughs> but it, within, within Discordianism, she is the goddess of strife, but also the goddess of reality. Aeneris, or harmonia, is the goddess of order, but of unbeing or non-being. This is like the Anton LaVey thing of repurposing Satan. He's not about evil. He's about, you know, uh, individualism right. and, uh, you know, clear, clear sightedness. It's very, it's very similar to that, right? Mm -hmm. It's a, it, the idea that chaos is evil or that, uh, that strife is evil rather than simply, uh, being 
is the little mind trick of this era of alternative religions. Strife is inconvenient for our masters, but we should embrace it. Right. The, the, one of the symbols of Discordianism is the golden apple, the apple of discord, which mm. you probably remember from the, the story of the Trojan Wars. Caused the Trojan War. That's right, where Eris uh, was snubbed by Zeus and so carved into an apple, the Greek word for to, to, to the most to beautiful, the fairest, yeah, yeah, to the fairest, and threw it into the into the wedding ceremony, and Hera and Athena and Aphrodite started fighting over it. I don't find this story plausible. If I saw an apple on the ground that said "Number One Dad," I wouldn't be like, "Sweet, I got to get that Number One Dad." Would apple. you not? I don't think I if would. If it was you and me, I think I would, here's here's me. Uh, somebody lost your you lost your apple. Uh, has anybody lost an apple? Hmm. I, I'd be helpful. If someone walked in right now with an apple made of gold that said number one dad on it. And they, and it was just you and me in here. And they said, uh, who lost their apple? They're good view. You wouldn't. And I reached for it. You wouldn't say like, whoa, 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 number one dad. Really? I'm I, think, a, I think you would. I no. think you'd stand up. You'd turn over this table. I'm a moral man. <laughs> I would say, uh, John, is that your apple? Oh, is that what you would say? Yeah. Yeah, but you'd say it in a way. You'd say it in a way that made it clear that you didn't think it was my apple. Hey, if this is actually neither of ours, maybe yeah. I'll just mm, take you it. Know. I, I could I could take it. Mm. Cut it's, the apple in two. It's the Seattle version <laughs> of the Trojan War. <laughs> so Discordianism and uh, and Greg Hill, they started this uh they started a religion based on on these principles, the principles of sort of non-central, disorganized. The, some of the tenets of Discordianism were that you rebel against Discordianism. Oh. Um, <laughs> that's right. This, uh, this, this, that's what I'm doing when I alphabetize my CDs. This I'm religion is very popular at MIT, and I'm sure is popular at Stanford now. Uh, but two of their friends slash disciples, Robert Anton Wilson, started to argue with Discordianism within their own this was a this was also a kind of pamphlet culture clearly a long time before the internet but people were using the copy machine at at work and and spreading um spreading this idea not through zines exactly but you know it was a much more difficult it's mimeograph based yeah it was much more difficult to spread this kind of uh this sort of sarcastic movement in the culture and so they would go to Someone at at MIT would convert all their frat brothers, and it would it was a um, it was a secret code that you were smart and you were interrogating religion and you were a, a libertarian in the sense of it in the '60s rather than the sense of it now. It must be a very I think it's a big part of the appeal of this thing that it seems underground that you only find it in a kind of a a faded mimeographed form because you can be in the you can be in American culture for decades and never have heard of any of this stuff the right. Illuminatus books or the Church of the Subgenius, it's never been in a movie. There's never been a documentary. Like it exists on this kind of weird substrata where even lots of counterculture stuff, even if you've heard of everything, even if you have a couple of R. Crumb books at home, you might not tap into this particular layer of American weirdness. What's so appealing about it is that it does try to connect the dots of some of the stuff that we were just talking about there. It, it's fairly mainstream thinking now to feel like culture, government, corporatism, 
are all in a not just a de facto conspiracy, but engaged in an active and intentional conspiracy. This is not fringe thinking anymore. You would find this on both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, if you if you took a leftist and a, a reactionary and you put them in the room, the one thing they would agree on is right. that all, everything we see is false and that it's all controlled by an unseen hand. It might even be some of the same hands. You could probably get them oh, to sure. agree that big corporations are doing it. Well, you know that 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 old canard that if you if you put the political uh, political belief on a spectrum, the further left or right you head, you just go around the circle. Are you saying politics is a flat circle? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. At the fur- at the furthest end of radicalism, uh, you find. A, a, almost a completely shared belief system. It just means that the crazies go to one end or the other, and it's <laughs> it's really kind of a chaotic accident which one they choose. That is part of the appeal of these things, and definitely was at the time when information was so much more scarce. And if you had a if you had this feeling that you were being encroached upon or over advertised to, or you started to have some of these insights, and then found. Uh, one of these documents or someone turned you on to right. it. Right. I'm not an alienated weirdo. I, just, I tapped into something that people are saying. But this stuff in particular was designed to be read by the the people that also recognized that that was hilarious, right? That the conspiracies were themselves a new and novel form of religion that incorporated a lot of what like ancient religions incorporate, an attempt to put order to what appeared to be disorder, a, an attempt to, to, to set up a kind of righteous small group that, ha, that had the word, that understood the truth. I mean, that's all that InfoWars is. It's, a, it's another sort of version of the world has fallen, Satan is in, in charge, what you think of as, yeah. as good and the priests are really bad and we have the truth here. So this was a this was a critique of that as well. So it, it operated I'm, at a couple levels. I'm wondering what to what degree. I mean, to me, the this kind of thing as a nonsense joke works very well. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're we're going to talk about some of the iconography, the search of the subgenus, and I find it all very funny. Yes. Um. And and the kind of thing that you have to contradict everything, even contradiction, even me, even my contradictions. I mean, as an intellectual MIT kind of joke, that seems to work pretty well. I mean, as a as a satire of philosophy or religion, I don't know. They kind of they kind of lose. Like it seems less funny to me on that level because I've heard that all before. Yeah, and and some of that probably in nineteen sixty eight or nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, I mean, it was fresher then. It felt fresher, right? Because I was listening to an old Lenny Bruce routine, and he does a long thing about how if Jesus came back today, he would be shocked at how Christians are hypocrites and have all this money. And I'm like, whoa, Lenny, that's pretty out there. Way to stick it to the man. You know, I, I guess I guess nobody was saying that kind of stuff. No, years at the ago. time that would have been really, I mean, even, in a, even among like intellectual hipsters, right. there were not that many people that would come out and say, I'm an atheist. I mean, there still aren't really that. I mean, I think if you take an online poll of, college sophomores, you get a lot of atheists. 99%. But, but there, it, it still is, I mean, America is still self, self-professed Christian nation. Well, it's funny how flat it's been since, you know, the 1890s or whatever, when George Bernard Shaw would be like, well, I am an atheist. And people would be like, you know, oh, good Lord. And their <laughs> monocle would fall into their tea. And it's essentially the same today. You could shock the PTA by being like, well, 
I'm an atheist. Right. And, Whoa. And, the, and you and I have spent a lot of time with our fingers soaking in the palm olive of this kind of thinking, but... <laughs> But uh, I think they're probably the vast majority of people in the country, if you sat next to them on an airplane and said, Fnord, <laughs> or I mean, if you sat next to them on the airplane and said, God is dead. Or just like, wow, it's kind of contradictory, isn't it, that Christians are so bigoted? I mean, actually think about it. 40% of your Twitter feed is people saying that. <laughs> um, right? Kind of making a pretty obvious critique of of what we perceive to be the the hypocritical nature of a lot of contemporary society and the blindness. I mean, the, the left-right political divide in America right now hinges on the idea that the other side is not operating in good faith. Yeah. They're either blind or they're corrupt. Malicious, right. And for 100 million Americans to really believe that about 100 million other Americans, that they're either blind or malicious or both, is is a fairly new idea. I mean, it, uh, it, it is not a conflict of ideas anymore because you don't believe that your opponent has any ideas. They're, uh, the ideas you'd be arguing with are, are just, you know, they're shadow boxing. They don't, they, I believe in my principles, but the other side does not. Doesn't. They're just living in either a dream world or they're being manipulated by a cultural octopus above them that they, that they have no insight into. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the religious parody aspect of this is, I think, appealing to the subset of the dawn of science fiction side of this equation. And this is where Robert Shea and, uh, or Shea and Robert Anton Wilson come in. They did write, as you foreshadowed. Sorry, spoilers. The, the, uh, they started to write some books which were derived from their, what they considered to be their hilarious anti-Discordianism take from within Discordianism, right? They were writing this stuff that was like, oh, you think that? Well, what about this? It's a joke on a joke. A joke on a joke. And so uh, they wrote they wrote a series of novels starting with The Eye in the Pyramid and then The Golden Apple and finally Leviathan, uh, which they which they realized became, you know, they, 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 it started as a joke and then they got it deep enough into the, the world building that they realized they had created a, a universe and started to write these books as novels. And they've been since, since compiled as a, an omnibus, basically, the Illuminatus trilogy. And they're kind of a counterculture classic for a certain kind of college kid of that generation. I don't think there's, I think they're kind of down the memory hole now. Yeah, but in 1984, boy, it was yep. it was right up there with Dune and, and the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> That's right. You got to have three <laughs> books on your bookshelf. Now, did the, you read the Illuminatus trilogy? I have not ever read it. I think I probably saw an ad for it in the back of Omni magazine. And that's exactly where you would have found it, right? And 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 that would have been who was di- uh, digesting this stuff. But it's a it's a kind of a hilarious, almost Pynchon-esque take on conspiracies and what if it were all real, right? Um, and sort of behold the pale horse came a little bit later, which was sort of regurgitated all this, but serious. Behold the Pale Horse was a book that came out in 1991 by a guy named Milton Cooper, which was an attempt to take all of the conspiracy theories and stitch them together into one kind of universal uh, 
That's uh, what you want. The Marvel Cinematic Universe right. of, uh, of Illuminati. The universal unmasking of all of the systems of control that are behind the, the actual world. If these people hate order, why do they keep trying to build all the conspiracies into one well-organized flowchart that only they understand? Because they want you to know. <laughs> but, uh, but, but this guy, Bill Cooper, um, was actually like in U.S. Navy intelligence. Oh, um, that's good that we're being governed by people that believe all this. <laughs> and so he had, he had, you know, supposedly had uh, access to a lot of this documentation, but he was 100% serious, or at least a, this book a, did not, there was no joke inside it. He apparently is not winking at any point. And it was the full, it ran the full gamut, uh, UFOs living under the North Pole, um, from the granular conspiracy theory about who really shot JFK all the way up to the fact that um, that like Xenos was was actually like ruling the world. Uh, Zenu, I mean the, uh, the the Scientological the Scientological uh, God that that came down from UFO heaven. So this stuff also kind of coincided with a lot of other culture jamming movements of the seventies that were punk adjacent, because punk rock in its earliest incarnation shared a lot of similar sympathies. It had absolutely don't it, believe what they're telling you. That's right. And it's all just, you know, I mean, the, it's basically chaos is order and, um, and dropping out is the, is the way to go. It's just because they were bad at dancing. They had to embrace chaos. Well, they didn't want to learn their guitar chords. <laughs> right. If you knew another chord and could actually dance instead of jumping up and down, you would be okay with order, but this seems easier. But there were a lot of, uh, there are a lot of variations in the punk rock theme and, and a lot of them shared this sensibility. For instance, Devo, um, which was, they were coming out of Ohio and in a, in a very different mindset. But their, their iconography, their sense of devolution, these weren't just topics of songs. They had, they had put together a kind of universe, a Devo universe of understanding that had its own little gods and little cultural touchstones and, and insights that if you got into Devo verse, you could, you could almost converse in its, in its dialect. This is like you getting into hee or me getting into pro wrestling. It's like <laughs> the discovery of this whole other little microverse, and you want to, you want to figure it out. In 1979, a man by the name of Douglas St. Clair Smith, who, <laughs> Did he, did, he, did he stop writing cozy British <laughs> mysteries? He sounds like uh, one of the guys in Spinal Tap. <laughs> uh, Douglas St. Clair Smith, uh, writing under the pseudonym Ivan Stang. That's more punk. Ivan Stang. Along with his friend Steve Wilcox, who was, uh, whose pseudonym was Philo Drummond, uh, they wrote a book, or they wrote, they, they wrote a, uh, let's call it a pamphlet at first, uh, called The Subgenius Pamphlet. And they were living in Texas at the time. And the subgenius pamphlet took Discordianism and really took it, took a lot of the principles of it and took it to that next level. Let's start an L. Ron Hubbard style new religion that had a pantheon of gods and had a had a struck a religious structure. It's a very Hubbardian. Does it have kind of the space opera uh, cosmology and everything? It does. I mean, a lot of the it's very it's very UFO involved. Right. Um, their god is named Jehovah One, and he is, you know, very connected to. That's when Zeno. Je that's when the username Jehovah is already taken. <laughs> <laughs> 
Would you like Jehovah One? <laughs> Jehovah nineteen seventy nine. So is the, so their god is is alien is alien connected or endorsed or something? The story of Zenu is that uh, he was. And Zenu being like a principal god of Scientology. Zeno, or a principal, I'm sorry, bad god of Scientology. Right. He, uh, he was a dictator who, uh, millions of years ago. Ancient aliens, right? Uh, ancient aliens brought all of his uh, UFOs to Earth, um, which was called, uh, Earth was called Tigiak at the time. He brought them in, in airplanes. His UFOs looked like DC-8s. Which is convenient. Which is interesting, considering that Scientology started at a time when the DC-8 would have been the the predominant airplane. But considering this is 75 million years ago, there these, you know, Zeno's really ahead of the game. Well, or we had finally caught up. <laughs> but uh, Zeno was bad, and he uh, he brought all of his uh, his fellow aliens here and uh, blew them up. He he like uh, he made them go into a he volcano. Put them in volcanoes. Yeah, and then he dropped very atom, mean atom bombs on them. I think if they're in a volcano, you're already good. You don't have to drop an atom bomb on them. Well, I don't know. You don't. I mean, these are these ended up being the Thetans of uh, of Scientology, which are the ghosts of these uh, dead aliens. When a Scientologist is trying to get clear, they're trying to get clear of the influence of these ancient alien ghosts. Right, the ancient alien ghosts that are still haunting us to this day. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So Jehovah One is, uh, is described as a wrathful alien space god from a corporate sin galaxy. Oh, so it's tying in Discordianism to a to a Hubbard-like cosmology. Yes, although he is the Church of the Subgenius would equate him with all. He is the same as the gods of all the Abrahamic faiths. So that's the trend, I think, in the 20th century. Because other religions are pretty good. You know, Zoroastrianism's got like 5,000 years ago, and you don't want to be like, nope, I'm going to correct Zoroastrianism. What you say is that. I've got the next tier that, right. that embraces all this other stuff. Right. It's not any longer possible, I don't think, to start a religion that just is just invented out of whole cloth, like yeah, lizard men. You have to be better than every other story, and right. what are the odds? And incorporate them, right? Yeah. Uh, the story of the of Subgenius is that a, a man, let's call him a man, although I don't, I don't know if that's 100% clear, uh, a man by the name of Bob Dobbs, was building a television set. Why is he building? This is one thing I don't understand about the Bob Dobbs origin story. <laughs> Bob Dobbs he's is supposed to be a fifties, a fifties uh, suburbanite type. Supposed right? to be. He was the world. He was. He's the world's greatest salesman in the nineteen fifties. He was like a Ward Cleaver 
sort of guy who was who he sells was, drilling equipment. Yeah, he sells he sells drilling equipment, which was the style at the time. Why is he building? Go to the go to the appliance store and buy a television, Bob. Well. This was an era when you built your own crystal radio, you could right? Buy, you was, could buy a kit, I guess. This is the handyman times when a, a fella could be out in his garage building his own television set. Okay, we'll take it for granted that for some reason Bob Dobbs is building his own television set. He's building set. a TV back in 1953, and Jehovah One appears to him in his new television set. Like Max Headroom? Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. And he reveals all of, uh, all of the tenants... You know, he, he, he starts to reveal the truth to Bob Dobbs and Bob Dobbs asks some penetrating questions. It is revealed to him the tenets of subgenius. Number one of which is the concept, uh, is the concept of slack. Slack. That is the highest state of accomplishment or being within the church of subgenius. And is it what it sounds like? Kind of a loose and lazy approach to life? It's very unclear what slack uh, exactly is, which is part of what slack is. The Tao that can be defined is not the true Tao, I guess. Precisement. Okay. Uh, Nord. So slack is something that's indefinable, but uh, should be striven for. You should strive for slack. You should, uh, you should look for slack in all things. It is not that far from hashtag aloha. Honestly, <laughs> it's I cannot say what hashtag aloha is, but I but I try to practice it every day. You're doing the Church of the Sub 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 Genius. That's right, the ch Church of the Hawaii chapter, the, the Maui chapter. Some of the principles of of Sub Genius are that you should stop working. Check uh, that working is uh, is a way that you just uh, your the yoke is kept on you, and you need to be enlightened by slacking off. So it does relate to our colloquial use of In slack. some ways, but, you know, a lot of our religious words get used a, a lot of different ways, right? Uh, they, they have multiple meanings. Yes. You should purchase church products, subgenius authorized products. So they're rebelling against corporatism with their own merchandising. That's right. Oh, that's so subversive. Uh, you should rebel against the law. The, the like, civil law? The civil law. You know, th this uh, Church of the Subgenius also, not, not its original founding in 1953, but its revelation to us in 1979-80. This is all retroactive as Xenu, right? Right. Um, this was a very popular kind of mentality at the time, right? This was, I, I, I talked to John Flansburg from They Might Be Giants about the Church of the Subgenius because he seemed to be sort of referencing Bob Dobbs in his early earliest incarnation as John Flansburg with the pipe mm -hmm. and the dark glasses right. and the and the um, we haven't mentioned pompadour. this, but, but Bob Dobbs has a very specific iconography of a '50s dad with a fedora and a pipe. Right, he is he is literally a clip art dad. Uh -huh. When I first became aware of the Church of the Subgenius, it was during this period where little stickers of Bob Dobbs would appear on phone poles. I too saw him with no context. Yeah. You'd, you'd see it, it was just sort of like Andre the Giant has a posse, mm -hmm. but less context, little stickers of Bob Dobbs. And then he started to show up in punk rock fanzines as a kind of, there would be little hat tips to him. I mean, discordiantism and the Church of the Subgenians, uh, a, a lot of their, a lot of the written material is very close to gibberish. It's very close to almost a, a kind of wild man Fisher level of, just uh, sp spoken word spewed. Sure, hippie rant. Yeah. Um, and the guys 
at the at the heart of all of this stuff, I mean, if you look at them, they all look like George R. R. Martin. I mean, it's part of a you, an era specific. You could see them at a sci-fi convention, right? They look like sure. kind of uh, they've got the gray beards and the chin weird, beards, exactly yeah. fedoras. Um, but they, they have a big they have a shelf full of R. Crumb books at home. And R. Crumb was R. Crumb was an early supporter oh, of Discordianism. Is that right? He like he he did some drawings for them. They had ads in his comics. I guess it's a pretty small leap from keep on trucking to keep on slacking. But it was during this period in the early 80s when there were, uh, it was maybe when stickers and flyers became a way of communicating within the counterculture where you would you'd be walking down the street and you'd see a flyer on a phone pole and you would stop and read it. Like, what? Somebody is trying to communicate with me? <laughs> the universe wants to tell me something. And part of, uh, part of the subgenius sort of ethos was to get out and poster, um, to, to, to do culture jamming in the form of like trying to subvert the advertising model. It's funny. They're suspicious of advertising, but they, you know, they use iconography that looks like it's kind of from an old timey period advertisement. Well, and they started, they basically jump started the idea of a religious zine, Hmm. which we saw in the mid eighties, the Jack chick tracks, which we should probably talk about on a future omnibus. This way of reaching the people through a subversive uh, pamphlet that you copied on your work copier at the end of the day. But usually what powers something like this is there's a social aspect to it. I mean, were people getting together? Did the Church of the Subgenius meet? Is there a a mass of the Subgenius? So so Subgenius was both um, obviously very suspicious of social gatherings as as a as a way of mind control but also really encouraged subgenius members to get together <laughs> church groups are called clenches a clench a clench when they get together for like big kind of uh, festival style meetings they're called devivals sort of like a, a devolution it's devo plus revival but they would get they would get together and have like in the spirit of chaos, these big debaucheries, I guess, um, they would have meetings at nudist colonies. It tied together with a, with a lot of... I have to assume these are mostly young, educated men. A lot of, a lot of men involved. There's a... There's a Just kind, the, now they're hanging out naked. There's a kind of famous story. Uh, there was a, like a crazy devival that happened once where there was a lot of nudity and somebody had a goat mask on and it was, you know, it was intentionally kind of a, a pagan rite mm-hmm. with a lot of tongue in cheek. But there was the wife of, uh, a wife of one of the ministers at the event was somehow identified at this event and it was used in a custody battle and she had her kids taken away from her. Oh, wow. Um, which was you know, quite a hullabaloo in the, in its own time and a- acted as a, a recruiting tool for the Church of the Subgenius that brought a lot of people to I it. I feel like at that point you have to be like, no, 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 it's it's really just a put on. I mean, can I explain, you know, irony and zine culture? Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not actually, you know, throwing goat's blood on police stations. I mean, as far as we know, Discordianism and Subgenius were their hierarchical model was very much a distributed one. And in Discordianism, everyone is considered a pope. Every person who 
ascribes to Discordianism is a pope. The American dream. So you can Every get, man a pope. You get your pope ID. Uh, within the within subgenius, you, you, all you have to do is send him $35 and you're a minister. It's a little bit less authentic uh, than the... Um, what am I? I'm a minister in the church of... Um, oh, the online thing? No, it wasn't online when I did it initially. Oh, uh, you actually did a mail in the mail order days? Yeah. What, 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 is, what, this, what is it called? Um, uh, Universal Life. There we go. So in, in 1991, I think, my college guidance counselor at the <clears throat> University of Washington, I was sitting in her office one day and she said, you know what? You should become a minister. And I said, well, yeah, but I mean, I've... I've always wanted to go to the Harvard uh, Divinity, the school? Divinity School and get a degree in theology, but right now I'm just trying to get my credits together to get to get my minor in Russian lit. And she said, "No, no, no! I'm a minister in the Universal Life Church, and I can ordain you as a minister." What kind of guidance counselor is this? Well, she, I, that's a long story, <laughs> and I, and I don't know if we were in her office or in her apartment at the time. But she said, uh, "You know, let me." She did some little ceremony that I think she was making up, <laughs> and I filled out some. She had some forms. I filled them out. I I licked an envelope. Three weeks later, or something, I got a big manila envelope back in the mail with my certificate of ordination and my little card. Now, most people I know who did this do it to officiate at a friend's wedding. I have officiated it probably, I think, between 15 and 18 weddings. Really? Including the weddings of many of my friends who are still married to this day. That's a fantastic rate. We need to check and see what your uh, completion rate is, like what, oh, per- yeah. what percentage of your couples are still together. I know a couple of them split up. I performed a a couple of weddings in bars. Um, of people you didn't know in the who early nineties. Who here has one of those laminated cards? No, it was it was they were they wanted to get married, but we were all just um, you know we were young hobos at the time. So so I would stand up on a picnic table at a, a tavern and I would say, "Gather ye around," and we'd have a wedding ceremony. A couple of those weddings didn't last, uh, or Shock- a couple of those marriages didn't. Shockingly, last. I should say that that the Church of the Subgenius also, as part of its ironicalness. If only the word irony existed, so we wouldn't have to say (laughs) ironicality. Ironicality. (laughs) It tries to be a destabilizing force, right? It also, uh, some of its tenets are that you should exploit other people's fear, that you should eliminate the world of pinks. And all of this is done with with a similar sort of tongue-in-cheek, but it's not... Uh, subgenius does not, the church does not present itself as like a, um, an, an antidote to authoritarianism or a substitute for it. It really is an agent, a chaos agent. I mean, if people are just doing it as a lifestyle, like I've never heard of any, of anybody getting in trouble for following up on the misanthropic tenets of the church of the subgenius, right? right? I mean, they don't have a problem with it, which means a hundred percent of the people, even the kind of weirdos who seek out stuff like this know what the gag is and where it stops. I think that's true for most of the people, but because the language and the, and it's admixture of ancient like uh, myths and sort of uh, like a goulash of philosophies and tied together with all of these new conspiracies, ancient conspiracies and what seem more and more like commonplace truths to people, 
which is that the government is controlled by the corporations, which are controlled by the Jews, which are controlled by the lizard men. The UFOs. The Yetis, that, I guess. That there are, well, no, we're the Yetis. Oh, sorry, the non-Yetis. No, the Yetis are the good people. The, the Z- Zendaya is Michi, I think. Yes, Zendaya is Michi. <laughs> but the non-Yetis are not. There is, a, I think, a, a small subset of the followers of the Church of Subgenius and Discordianism and the Illuminatus who are not unserious. I mean, it, 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 these are the mentally ill ones. <laughs> yeah, it it is dangerous material to put out a religious with a wink, text, right? With a wink, right? I mean, but you're you're in an Andy Kaufman state here where they never break character. Yeah, and so for forty years. Ivan Stang is still alive and still out there, still running the Church of the Subgenius. and Making a comfy living on people buying mugs and stuff? I think so. He has a radio show called The Hour of Slack. Uh, Subgenius is, I mean, if you go online and want to pursue a, a life within the church, all of the material is there available to you. I like that it's a fandom. Yeah. No, no other religion has really kind of co-opted fan culture. I'm often surprised that they don't play a larger role in nerd... Uh, in the nerd cosmology. Still very under the radar. You yeah. could be very into any number of different kinds of geek culture and uh, really only just be vaguely aware that sometimes you see the pipe guy. I think if you went to a Comic-Con dressed as Bob Dobbs, all the guys that wear suspenders on their jeans would would like tip their sailor hats <laughs> at you. But most of the, the fans of the Marvel Universe wouldn't know what the hell you were talking about. And it really does, uh, it would work within a lot of contexts. You could easily tie subgenius to My Little Pony. It wouldn't because it's so because it's so malleable. So your take is that the church of the subgenius has underachieved. It, do you feel like in your hands you could have done better? Which uh, absolutely, but I mean, I mean, we already have a church of omnibus that rivals them. <laughs> but Ivan Stang, when you start a thing like this, you never expect that this is going to be your life's work. I don't think. But he has really pursued the Church of the Subgenius ever since. He actually never had to get a job. Like he, he, no, he, was, make, a, he was able to fulfill one of the tenets for itself, himself. He makes a hundred grand a year just uh, people writing in. And I think there are at uh, Burning Man, at Rainbow Gatherings. I mean, I think he still makes an appearance. But I, for one, uh, welcome our Bob Dobbs overlords. Our Yeti, our Yeti our, oppressors? Our, our, no, our, our, our Yeti forebears I, in my case. I keep getting this backwards. The <laughs> Yetis are good. Our ancestors, my, let's say, let's just start with me. My ancestors are Yetis. Now, I can't speak for you. You're, you seem to be anomalous. Maybe I'm not pronouncing Fnord right. <laughs> oh, I didn't hear it that time. And that concludes The Church of the Subgenius. Entry 222.ac1605. Certificate number 31147 in the Omnibus. Now, speaking of cultural forces that have overachieved, uh, we just want you to know that in our time, John and I were icons of the wasteland that was social media. Mm. Uh, This program was at Omnibus Project. Among other places. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, possibly uh, MySpace. Check out my SoundCloud. Uh Go to my kick. I was at Snapchat. John Roderick. John was at Ken Jennings. That's my Discordian version of outro. Yeah. Chaos is, his order, order is chaos. Just crazy. <laughs> we uh, could receive electronic communications jointly at the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. Uh, unless it had the word Fnord in it, in which case 
I guess only John can see it. Hmm. We uh, all our listeners are super uncomfortable right now. <laughs> I think they, they just want to go buy some perfume. I think in a post pink world, you know, they're all fine. They're actually. all like. It's on their flag. The, the meteor or whatever it is was actually Jehovah One raining fire from heaven. And all the non-Yetis are, uh, are no more. In our uh, day, the Futurelings congregated at, the, uh, at a namesake Facebook group that you should definitely look up. They're probably complaining about John thinking that Red Dawn was in Montana and me not talking about magic mushrooms enough. <laughs> Those are the, those are their two big. They got, gripes they got the really mad about that uh, about that uh, the R- Colorado Montana Red Dawn axis. I like how you stuck to your guns. Yeah, I was like, no, Colorado's just a stand-in for Montana in, in the Red Dawn universe. I like how you're you're bringing Discordianism into the Red Dawn <laughs> cinematic universe. Let them chew on that. If uh, electronic communication is not enough for you, and you wish to send us your um, Bob. Dobbs, t-shirt iron-ons, or uh, temporary tattoos. We'll take all your vintage devolution materials. All your devozines, please send them to Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Or if you even regard it as having been a civilization. It's possible right. we're misusing that term entirely. They may be like, they're so cute when they call themselves a civilization. Uh, what would the equivalent be for us? Uh, a nascency? <laughs> like, but, but what thing would we think back oh, on? Oh, I see. You know, like, if we found a record from, uh, you know, those snow monkeys in Hokkaido being right. like, you probably remember our many accomplishments. <laughs> like, no. You're monkeys that live in the snow. <laughs> Well, as your monkeys who live in the snow, we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final work. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.